0: to each heart that is here. We pray these things, Father, for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you join me in your Bibles in Luke chapter 20? And I just want to say welcome to those of you who are visiting with us today. Thank you for joining us here today at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. And we hope that you have already been able to worship God with us in singing and in reading the Word and in praying. And every week we devote a large portion of our services to simply explaining and declaring God's Word. We believe that the Word of God is true and that it is our power and it is our authority. We've been doing a study through the Gospel of Luke, and today we'll be looking at the, the latter half of Luke chapter 20. So follow along as I read our text. It is a longer text today, but I want, want you just to hear it and to let it just sort of flow over your heart and for you just to read this with us and pray for God to open your heart to what he has for us. Let's just go ahead and stand together out of respect for God's word as we read this text. So remind us that we are God's people together standing under his word. Now, we're not just a collection of individuals, but we are, we're a family and we're hearing from our, our father as we read his word. So Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 20, follow along as I read. And they, that's the religious leaders, watched him and sent forth spies which had feigned themselves just or righteous men, that they may take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him under the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar, or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny." "'Whose image and superscription hath it?' they answered and said, Caesar's. "'And he said unto them, "'Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, "'and unto God the things which be God's.' "'And they could not take hold of his words before the people, "'and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. "'Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, "'which deny that there is any resurrection. "'And they asked him, saying, "'Master Moses wrote unto us, "'If any man's brother die having a wife, "'and he die without children,' that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren. And the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her to wife, and he died childless, and the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. Now, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush, when he calleth the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him, Lord, how is he then his son? Then in the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes, which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues, and the chief rooms at the feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he saith of a truth, I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God. But she of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had. You may be seated. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research put out a study called The State of Theology, in which they survey American evangelicals regarding their beliefs. And so they're, they're, they're not just asking the population as a whole, but those who profess to know Jesus as their savior, who believe that you know they have to be saved through a new birth. And they ask them about their beliefs. Here's some of the conclusions from that study this year. 73% of evangelical Christians, those who say that the Bible is their authority, that Jesus is their savior, 73% accept and agree the claim that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Okay, that is three in four evangelical Christians say that Jesus is merely a created being. 58%, that's well over half, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're a Muslim, God will accept your, your, your worship if you are sincere. Again, evangelical, supposedly Bible-believing Christians saying that there's lots of ways to... Get worshiped to God. 55% believe that the Holy Spirit is a force but not a personal being. 55% agree that everyone sins a little but most people are basically good. 53% disagree with the claim that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Okay, you don't have to have a PhD in theology or be a student of Christian history, to know that those are some very, very troubling statistics. That there are people who say that they are born-again Christians who don't believe that Jesus is God, who don't believe that sin is really deserving of hell. Self-professing evangelical Christians are denying the deity of Christ, denying the exclusivity of Christianity, denying the personality of the Holy Spirit, the total depravity of man, the justice of hell. Like the core doctrines of the faith being like, yeah, those don't really matter which begs the question, which raises the question, what does it mean to be an evangelical Christian? What does it mean to say I'm a born-again Christian living in the year 2022 in the United States of America? The tragic reality is the label evangelical Christian, born-again Christian, is now more of a cultural label than a statement of theological belief. It's more about saying who you voted for in the last election than who you believe is the savior of the world. This suggests, these studies, these statistics suggest that being an evangelical Christian is more about a cultural identity than a vibrant relationship with Christ. Now, this phenomena of, of sort of a, hey, the trappings of Christianity and this label of Christianity, apart from really any biblical content, is known as cultural Christianity. Listen, there's been a tremendous effect of Christianity in our nation. Many of the things that we appreciate and enjoy are the result of something of a Christian heritage. And what happens is we can enjoy sort of the fruits of Christianity, the morals, the ethics, the ways that you might vote or interact in society, without the roots of that. Cultural Christianity wants the fruit of Christian morality without the roots of Christian theology. Think about it this way. You go out in the garden and you cut some fresh flowers. They may be beautiful for a while, but what's invariably going to happen? They're eventually going to wilt and die, and that, I think, is what we are seeing in our society today. We see the rise of the nuns, those who say that they, um, you know, that, that, that they don't really claim any religion at all. A lot of that is not actually people rejecting Christianity, as much as people who were just sort of cultural Christians letting go of the semblance of what they once claimed to have, of just sort of, hey, we go to church, we like Jesus. And here's the reality. In this passage, we see Jesus confronting the religious establishment of his day. He's going to run into the scribes, which were part of the Sanhedrin. They're the, the, the scholars. He's going to interact with the Sadducees. He's going to interact with the Pharisees. Really, the entirety of the, uh, of the, the religious establishment of the day. And the Judaism of Jesus' day was very similar to the cultural Christianity of our day. Belief in God was embedded in the culture. To be Jewish meant you believed in Yahweh just in many ways. Hey, to be a good sort of Southern American conservative is to believe in God. Religious observance was high. You go to the temple, we go to church. The average Jew found identity in their religious affiliation. And here's what began to happen is the sort of the core of their faith was hollowed out from genuine love for God. It began to be filled, that vacuum began to fi- be filled with more and more extreme adherence to political viewpoints. The Jews of Jesus' day treated politics with religious fervor. In fact, re- this fervor would lead to a rebellion against Rome within 40 years of Jesus' life. They understood the afterlife to be little more than just a continuation of the present and they regarded Messiah as just a Davidic deliverer to make their their nation a better place. And as we saw in the end of that passage, they reduced religion to outward observances. Sounds a whole lot like our culture, doesn't it? Politics sort of gets elevated. Afterlife is just kind of a a continuation of the present, and heaven's going to be this great place where we go hang out with grandma. Jesus is there to be sort of a sidekick and a friend, and religion is just about, Christianity is just about going to church. Now, in these encounters with the religious leaders in Luke chapter 20, we see Jesus responding to their attacks and to their uh, their devious attempts to bring him down with tremendous wisdom. All the different ways they try to bring Jesus down, he responds with such wisdom that they are left absolutely silenced. We see this note hit over and over again. Uh, in, in verse 19, he had spoken a parable and they realized it had been spoken against them and they can't arrest him because everybody appreciates what Jesus is saying. Verse 26, uh, they are stunned into silence by his wisdom. And then after he has this encounter with the Sadducees, no one asked him any more questions. People are like, we're not going to try to question Jesus anymore. No, this is not going to work. So from this text, from this passage, I want us to sort of step back. Jesus is critiquing the religious establishment of his day. I think many of the critiques he utters here are applicable to the religious establishment of our day. Now, I'm not talking about our culture at large. I'm not talking about sort of progressive, godless. No, I'm talking about sort of our conservative, culturally Christian environment in which we live. I'm talking about here in Mobile, Alabama, the year 2022. I would suggest to you as very culturally Christian, a lot of people have religious affiliation, claim to believe in God, go to church, and all those sort of things. So what I want to start into this morning, we may not make it through all of it, is looking at some characteristics of cultural Christianity. As Jesus exposes the empty shell of their religion, he also presents the core of genuine religion. And he calls us to reject cultural Christianity and embrace the real thing. Now, this may be an important message for you today, because you might be just a cultural Christian here today. You're here at church, you believe in God, you look forward to heaven, but there's not a real vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. I just want to call you to sort of undivided attention. I know there's been a lot of distractions this morning and comings and goings and and, and all these things happening, but let's put our undivided attention on the Word of God and evaluate our hearts. So what are the characteristics of cultural Christianity and how does Jesus critique it? The first characteristic is this. Cultural Christianity prioritizes politics. Yeah, I know. I'm just going to step right onto that mine. The the first question they bring to him in verses 20 to 26, they come to him with a question about politics: Should we pay taxes to Caesar, or should we not? Now we understand the cultural background. The Romans had conquered Palestine; they were ruling it as a province. And one of the things that the Romans did in the provinces is they levied tribute on them. Right? They don't—they're not going to charge the Roman citizens to run the empire. They're going to take the money from the provinces from the conquered population. So here are the people of Israel who prize their independence, who value their autonomy, who, have, who believe that God alone is their king. And here comes Caesar, this pagan, this pagan emperor, who once get thee behind me, Satan. My goodness, I don't know what's going on today. Um, there, here's, this, here's this emperor who demands people's worship. In fact, the coins actually would say, would actually say, Tiberius Caesar, son of the deified Augustus. The very coins that they had to use to pay their taxes, in effect, said, Caesar is God. Right? In effect, these coins were proclaiming the deity of this human ruler over against the deity of Yahweh. So here's the system that is idolatrous, that is oppressive, that is tyrannical. Nobody likes paying the taxes, and what's more, there's this religious dimension. So they ask the question in verse 22... By the way, we get this runway to it to where we know they're not really asking because they want to know. They're buttering Jesus up and tell us what you really think. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Is it lawful? Is this in accordance with God's divine law? Are we violating the Ten Commandments that says no graven images by giving this coin that has a graven image? Are we violating the command that says no other gods by sort of acknowledging the rulership of Caesar over the Lamb? Now, the reason they're asking the question is verse 20. They're trying to catch Jesus in his words so they could deliver him over to the power and authority of the governor, to Pontius Pilate. If they can get Jesus to publicly go on record with the camera rolling and the microphone in his face of saying, don't pay taxes to Caesar, well, hand him over to the Romans. Look, you have a rebel. You have a zealot on your hands. Get rid of Jesus. He, he's telling people not to pay taxes. In fact, this is one of the charges that they make against him. You can read about that in Luke 23. He's telling us not to pay taxes. He's telling us to overthrow the Romans. If, on the other hand, Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to the Romans, they're like, oh, so now you you think that Rome is legitimate. You think that Caesar is great. Now you're you're, you're supporting the the tyranny. It's a lose-lose for Jesus. If he says, yes, pay your taxes, then the Jewish nationalists who hate Rome will no longer listen to Jesus. If he says... Don't pay your taxes, then they hand him over to the Romans and they get him murdered and get him executed. They are trying to skewer him on the horns of a dilemma. Now, notice how he answers this. He perceived their craftiness and said, show me a penny. Now, the language, why tempt you me, probably is just getting carried over from Mark's gospel and, and some, of the, some of the copies. He does say that in Mark's gospel. He says, show me a penny. Now, don't think a penny, you know, like a copper penny like we have today. This would have been a denarius. That's the, the word that is there. One of the Roman, uh, Roman currencies of the day. And the denarius was the, the wage that you would get paid for a day's worth of work. All right, so you work all day, and then this is the coin you get, and the Romans required payment in their taxes in this particular coin. He says, so show, me, show me this particular coin, show me this denarius. Then he asks, whose image and superscription is on it? Whose picture is on the coin? Whose image is stamped on it? What name is on it? And they say, okay, it's Caesar's name. It's, it's got this inscription about his deity and his importance on it. Now, what is Jesus doing here? In a sense, by saying, hey, you're using Caesar's money, um, you're enjoying the benefits of Rome Rome's rule, you ought to pay your taxes, right? The government that's issuing that currency, they're building the roads, they're providing safety and stability. There were benefits to the Roman rule, even though, that it, even though it was unjust and tyrannical in many ways. The people in Judea were still benefiting from many of the benefits of it. Listen, government is ordained by God to restrain sin, to punish evildoers, to preserve law and order, and even pagan governments have those aims. And Jesus, in effect, is saying, listen, you are enjoying some of those benefits by having this currency, by engaging in the commerce that Rome facilitates. But his answer is absolutely brilliant. He takes a question, that they said, either or. Either you pay the taxes or you don't. And he's like, no, it's actually a both and. Is it lawful? Is it in accordance with God's law? to support Rome, to pay the tax. He says here in verse 25, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's. Okay, the coin's got whose picture on it? Caesar's. So who does the coin belong to? Caesar. So give to Caesar the thing that belongs to him, and then give to God the things which belong to him. Jesus is making two very important points. One of them is government is ordained by God. Romans 13 teaches that all authorities given by God. Government would not exist without God's establishing it. And by the way, not just good government, um, not just government that is nice and just and righteous and, you know, pure. No, even corrupt government. Tiberius Caesar was not a good guy. Nero was a horrible tyrant of a ruler who was ruling when Paul wrote that in Romans 13. And Jesus says, still render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, what Do God's people owe to Caesar? What is our duty to government? Well, for one thing, it is to pay our taxes, right? Not like try and get around that and and do fraud. We're supposed to pay our taxes. Another thing we're supposed to do is obey the laws. Uh, That's what Paul will say in Romans 13. You need to obey the laws of the land. Uh, That way you won't have to fear government. If we're all a bunch of lawbreakers, then the state will have an excuse to round up Christians, right? Or to persecute Christians. That's what Paul is saying is... If you are rabble rousers and you're out in the streets and you're fomenting revolution or rebellion, you give the state an excuse to target you. And so he says, "So don't give them that excuse. Be people who are law-abiding citizens. What else do we owe to the state? According to First Peter, we are to show honor. We are to honor the emperor. We are to show respect to the leaders. That's a God-given responsibility that we have. Now let me just say something here. In, in Jesus' day, because the, the religion of the Jewish people had sort of been evacuated of its, of its heart of worship, what filled that void were political commitments. So for them to be a good Jew meant to hate Rome, right? If you're going to be a good Jew, you hate Rome. That's, that, that sort of comes and takes the place of you're, you're no longer worshiping God, and so a political commitment takes the place of what once was a theological commitment. I fear the same thing is happening in our world today. And, and here's one of the ways we see it is Christians who know what God's word says are willing to heap all kinds of vile abuse on God-ordained rulers. Uh, these things ought not so to be. To, to name call and to demean those who God has put into authority is to violate Scripture. We are called to respect and to pray for our rulers. Even if they're not good rulers, all the more we should pray for them. We can disagree, absolutely. We can, we can even call out evil that is done, but always respecting those that God has put into those positions. Now, when he comes back and says, and render to God the things that are God's, he is saying that there are some things that, yes, you owe something to Caesar, to government, you have a responsibility there, but you have an even greater responsibility to God. Caesar's authority is ultimately limited. Caesar is not God. Caesar cannot make a claim on your conscience. And by the way, Caesar did indeed try to do that. So the second statement is saying, yes, government is ordained by God, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. God's authority is ultimately supreme. So there are going to be occasions when Caesar's demands are going to directly contradict with God's demands. Well, we get the example of what we do in Acts 5.29. We ought to obey God rather than men ultimate allegiance does not belong to the state caesar cannot rule over the conscience he cannot demand worship he cannot demand ultimate allegiance that belongs to god alone now the word that jesus used in verse 24 whose image is it says the word icon the exact same word that was used in the greek translation of the old testament In Genesis 1.26, that man is made in the what? The image of God. Say, whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. Whose image is on your soul? God's. So if we render to Caesar the thing that's got his image on it, what ought we to render God? Our life, our soul, and our all is owed to God. We owe our ultimate love and allegiance to God, not to the state, not to a political party. Beloved, government cannot save you save you, and politics cannot transform hearts. Only God can do that. Government cannot command the conscience. It cannot intrude into matters of religion or compel conversions, nor would we want it to. Now, if God is ultimate and not government, that means that politics should have a secondary place in our beliefs. Our identity, beloved, is not found in our political tribe. Our loyalty is not owed to any political party. We are people of the cross and followers of the lamb and citizens of another kingdom. Now, what happens in cultural Christianity? Because the theology and the heart of affection is not there, political claims become supreme. In cultural Christianity, Christianity is less about looking like the lamb as it is about loving the elephant and hating the donkey. I'm not saying that political involvement is wrong. What I am saying is that political claims are not ultimate. Political identity is not at the center. When it moves to the center of our Christian identity, something goes horribly wrong. Owning the libs becomes a virtue and loving your neighbor becomes a vice. Constant outrage and anger take the place of love and joy and peace. Unless you go onto social media, you will see that these things are often, the tr- often true. My plea is not that we surrender the public square or stop voting according to biblical values. My plea is that we would remember our primary call is not to save America, but to preach Christ. Our primary call is not to win elections, but to win souls. My plea is that we would see political views as implications of our faith, not the essence of our faith. According to the studies that have gone out, being an evangelical is more about politics than theology and that ought to be the other way around. My plea is that as we engage in discourse with our neighbors, we would not betray our call to Christ-like love and humility and civility and gentleness. Winsomeness, being salt and light is our calling, not loudly winning arguments and shouting down the opposition. My plea is that we would set our hope on the kingdom of King Jesus and make that a far greater priority in our hearts and minds than anything else. It's interesting to me that there's not much of a record of Jesus spending his time critiquing the policies coming out of Rome. Jesus was far more concerned about who ruled in the hearts of his listeners than who ruled the Mediterranean world from Rome. Cultural Christianity, sort of theology, and relationship with God takes second Place to politics being the key identity marker. I think we see that happening in, in our world. But let me give you a second characteristic of a, of a cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity misunderstands heaven. We next get this encounter between Jesus and the Sadducees. Now, who are they? The Sadducees, we, we always get the statement, they deny the resurrection. They're one of the main sort of uh, groups in Judaism. You've got the Pharisees who were, you know, very legalistic, but they believed in the resurrection. They believed in miracles. The Sadducees were sort of from the upper class. They were associated with the priests. And the Sadducees uh, were sort of the rationalists of the day. They'd be like, people don't rise from the dead. Come on, angels, they don't exist. Miracles, those don't happen. And so here come the Sadducees, and they're going to try to bring Jesus down. In other words, the Sanhedrin, even though they, 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 they don't like each other, the Pharisees come and ask the question with the Herodians, that's kind of crazy about taxes. Now the Sadducees come along to ask about the resurrection and all of this is a prearranged plot to try to bring Jesus down one way or another. So verse 27, then came certain of the Sadducees who denied there is any resurrection. And they asked him saying, "Master, Moses wrote if a man's brother die and he give this whole story about this guy or this wife who married seven different people in succession, they ask the question in verse 33, Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. Major, major misunderstandings of the afterlife, right? They're, they're, for one thing, they don't believe it. That's one misunderstanding about heaven. It doesn't exist. It's not for real. It's not, it's not a big deal. That's the view of the Sadducees. The view of the Sadducees is like the resurrection is preposterous. And to try to prove their point, they, they draw on the example of the leverant marriage. Right, that's what they're describing in verses 28 down to verse 32. Basically, God's, God's way of protecting widows in the Old Testament was if, if, a, if a woman dies without a child to sort of t- carry on the family name and protect her, an unmarried brother would step in and, and take the place of husband uh, to, to continue on the family name. So they tell this preposterous story of a woman who goes through seven brothers and they all die. I'd have questions, really. I'd be like, okay, the only common denominator here is, like, her. So that that's a problem. But it's a crazy story. Then she dies. There's no kids. Seven different marriages. Like, okay, we've really got Jesus now. In the resurrection, who's she going to be married to? Like, is she going to be consigned to all of eternity to really awkward family pictures and strange relationships with seven husbands trying to tell her what to do? What does that tell us about their understanding of the afterlife? It tells us that they pretty much viewed uh, the, 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 the afterlife, if it exists, it's just basically a continuation of what we have here. Relationships are the same, statuses are the same. So in the eyes of the Sadducees, they're like, if that's the case, we reject it out of hand. So one misunderstanding of heaven is, okay, heaven doesn't exist. That's where the Sadducees were. They were used to having debates with the Pharisees about this. Pretty much, you get Pharisees and Sadducees together, they're going to argue about the resurrection. Right? They're, this is just going to be what they always squabble about. You know, Baptists and Presbyterians together, they're going to argue about baptism. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees did. They're used to the Pharisees' understanding of the afterlife, which is, yeah, it's just kind of a better version of here and now. You're married now, you'll be married then. You're rich now, well, you may be rich then. And so the Sadducees are like, that's absurd. You have someone with seven husbands. Like, how's that going to work? So look how Jesus responds. In verse 34, Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world, of this age, in the here and now, marry and are given in marriage. Listen, marriage belongs to the present age. It's God-ordained. It is a good thing. It is a blessed thing. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world, okay, the age to come, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. He says, listen, marriage belongs to the present age. It will not continue in the age to come. But did you note how he worded that in verse 35? Those that shall be accounted worthy to obtain the age to come and the resurrection from the dead. You know what that suggests? Not everyone will attain the resurrection to eternal life. Now, all will be raised. There will be a resurrection to life and one to judgment. But not everyone will make it to heaven. I think one of the big misunderstandings of heaven that is made in a culturally religious setting is that, well, just sort of everyone makes it. Just sort of by being a good person or being a member of the church or just sort of being a good part of the community, you all make it to heaven. Jesus says, no, it's only those who are accounted worthy who will attain the resurrection from the dead. He attacks the common misunderstanding of heaven that heaven is for everyone, or at least people who are kind of like us. Many people today, many evangelical Christians, believe that Jesus is one of many ways to get to heaven, and if you're sincere, you'll make it. And Jesus says, no, 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 only those who are accounted worthy. Now, the burning question is, what's the standard? What's the standard by which you'll be accounted worthy, and who makes that call? Who determines what, who is going to be accounted worthy of the resurrection? Well, it's only God. It's a a theological passive. Those who are accounted worthy by God will attain the resurrection. What's the standard? Beloved, the standard is not simply being born in a particular part of the country, it's not being raised, going to church, and believing in the existence of God. Even the demons believe and they tremble. It's not just simple belief in God, it's not simply being baptized. It is taking up your cross and following Jesus. Only those who follow Jesus to the cross follow him to a resurrection. Only those who die to their sin and are regenerated and born again are accounted worthy of the life to come. But the biggest misunderstanding that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had was that it's just like earth. It's just like here. It's just like now. It'll just be kind of a good continuation of what we have here and now. Jesus says in verse 36, for, they, uh, for neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. What Jesus is saying is, is totally different. You guys have the, totally the wrong idea. He, doesn't, you know, he could have jumped into an, an argument about the details of Leverett marriage and her first husband or it was the last one. Or he goes, he goes right into the rug that is under their feet and yanks it out. The assumption that eternal life would be a mere continuation of earthly life with present statuses and relationships intact. He's saying resurrection life, eternal life, the, the life to come is not simply an extension of present conditions. It's a new kind of existence. He says we, you will not die. You will be immortal in that time. You'll be like the angels. Okay? Angels are immortal and asexual. They don't reproduce. There's not going to be any need for marriage or any ability to enter into a marriage relationship. And then he says this, and they are the sons of God. Those who are resurrected are sons of God. 1 John chapter 3, John says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God, and that you are. And it does not yet appear what you will be, But when you see him, you will be like him, for you will see him as he is. We we are God's children now. But the day is coming when our status as being sons of God in glory will be revealed. That, That phrase, sons of God, often in the New Testament, is looking forward and leaning forward to the coming glory that will be ours in Christ. Here's what Jesus means by that. He says, when the resurrection comes, when we enter into eternal life, we will attain that for which we were created. We will reflect God's image as his children for all eternity, and Christ will be all and in all. Questions about who you'll be married to are just foolish in light of that. Just going to be all-consuming glory of Christ will be the, the joy of heaven. You see, marriage, while it is wonderful, is not our ultimate destiny. Marriage is good precisely because it points to the greater good, the greatest good of all, our coming marriage to Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage is a model. Christ is the reality. Marriage is the blueprint. Heaven is the building. Marriage is the sign. It says, Disney World 100 miles Glory is the destination. It's not that marriage is bad. Marriage is good. It was ordained by God. It's that when we get to heaven, we will have something so much better, which is Christ. Now, maybe that's like this idea that you won't be married to your spouse in heaven is maybe a really sad thought to you. Or maybe it's a tremendous relief, like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> let me just throw this out there. You will, we will still know one another in heaven. We will still love one another in heaven. And the one another that you will love and know in heaven will be one another's who don't have any more sin. So what we are going to experience and enjoy in heaven is so much better than the best marriage. You might say, I've got a wonderful marriage. I don't want to lose this. Okay, you're getting something so much better to know Christ and to know your spouse and other believers, not just as your spouse, like because we're we're married. No, No, to know them in a sinless, glorified state. That's, that's so much better than just being like, I hope we still are married when we get to heaven. To ask the question, will we still be married in heaven, is kind of like asking, "Like do beavers write violin concertos? Or do eagles go to college? It's like, that's not what they do. It's not in the nature of the thing to do it. It's not in the nature of glorified saints to be concerned about things like that when Christ is present. Jesus will be all. Christ will be all. Now, in cultural Christianity, what's the common view of heaven? Common view of heaven is like, hey, it's going to be really awesome. Streets of gold. I'm going to see, you know, my aunt there and grandma will be there. And there's going to definitely be, you know, biscuits and gravy. And uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus will be kind of hanging out with all of us. It's going to be awesome. I would suggest to you the common view of heaven today in our culturally Christian society is kind of similar to what the Pharisees had. It's better than now, but it's going, to be, it's going to be basically now like my dog will be there that I've missed, and it'll just be kind of like a better version of here and now. It'll be kind of a big cracker barrel in the sky. We'll be sitting on these rocking chairs on the sort of the front porch and bouncing around on, on clouds playing harps. It'll be just a good time. There'll be fishing and hunting. It'll be awesome. Heaven will be infinitely good, but as infinitely good not because of the streets of gold or the harps or the marriage supper of the lamb or seeing grandma. Heaven is infinitely good because Christ is there. Heaven is infinitely good because we will see God in all of his glory. And I would suggest to you, if that is not what you are looking for, you may not be regenerate. The regenerate heart, the heart that has been born again, has a growing love for Jesus and not just what God can give to us. If you could have heaven with all of your family and all of your favorite foods and all of your favorite hobbies, and it was perfect and beautiful, but Jesus wasn't there, would you still want it? Do you want heaven because you will forever enjoy God, or do you want heaven because it's nice? Cultural Christianity presents a, hey, here's a heaven that's really nice. Do you want heaven? Pick heaven. Check this box. Say this prayer if you want heaven. Biblical Christianity says, do you want Jesus? And by the way, if you get Jesus, you get eternal life with him, which is eternal and wonderful and beautiful because Christ is there. For all of eternity, we will delight in his glory, gaining every day a greater vision of Christ, experiencing a soul-expanding, mind-blowing joy found in God. Heaven will not be boring not for one second of eternity, because we will never stop knowing an infinite God more and more. This is eternal life, that they may know thee and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Why is eternal life eternal? Why must it be eternal? Because it will take eternity to know an infinite God. You see the difference? Cultural Christianity, heaven's nice. Biblical Christianity, heaven is about Jesus. Which are you looking forward to? A third characteristic of cultural Christianity, what was true of Jesus' day, I think true in many ways of our day, is that it distorts Jesus. So it prioritizes politics because the theology has kind of been left in the dust. It misunderstands heaven, just kind of a continuation of the here and now. It distorts Jesus. So they're done asking their questions. They go through all of this. Verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, "...the dead are raised, as even Moses showed at the bush." when he calleth the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In other words, God's promises are eternal, and that requires a resurrection. And verse 40, And after that they durst not ask him any question at all. Okay, we don't use the word durst. I durst not. Uh, okay, what does that mean? They did not dare or attempt. Nobody had the courage. No one had the backbone to go up against Jesus again. He would made all the other people who came to bring him down look foolish. What wisdom of Christ, that he can, can shame even the wisest. So here's all these big kahunas from the Sanhedrin trying to bring Jesus down. They all have egg all over their face. They look, they look dumb. And Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 41, he's going to now turn the tables. He's now going to go on the offensive. He's got them on the ropes, and he's going to continue landing punches. And he said unto them, how say they, now who's the they, the, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the religious experts, the priests, how say they that Christ is David's son? When David himself set in the book of Psalms, the Lord Yahweh said unto my Lord Adonai, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calls him, that is Messiah, Lord, how is he then his son? Okay, what is Jesus doing here? He's showing how they have distorted and misunderstood, have an incomplete picture of who the Messiah is. Now, they got some things right. The Messiah would be David's son. They had read their Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, and Psalm 89, verses 20 to 37, and Isaiah 9, 2 to 7, predicted the Messiah would be springing up from the root of David. So say the Messiah would be in the kingly tribe. He would be the king of Israel, the king of Judah. Luke himself agrees with that assessment in Luke 1, where where, where Gabriel is coming and telling Mary that she's going to have a son. So he's going to sit on the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We had blind Bartimaeus say, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. Is it true that Jesus is the son of David? Yes. Jesus is not denying that. But what he is saying is that's not all that the Messiah is. Messiah is not merely David's son. He's not merely a king who's going to come and get rid of the Romans. He's not merely human. So he quotes Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is written by David. Jesus affirms this. Which, by the way, it was kind of staggering to me, the number of commentators who were like, yeah, David probably didn't write it. And you're like, uh, Jesus said that... Okay. Uh, David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. So notice L-O-R-D, all caps. That's the divine name, Yahweh. So it says God himself says to Messiah, sit on my right hand. Here's David prophesying about the Messiah who would come. And he says the Messiah who's going to come, who's going to be my descendant, is number one, going to sit on Yahweh's right hand. He's going to be equal with God. And David also calls him my Lord. Listen, you don't call people my Lord who are less than you, but people who are greater than you. Now here's the dilemma. No Jewish father would call his son Lord. It was always the other way around. You always respected those who were older. It's always David who is sort of the measure of all the kings in the Old Testament. So for David to say, the Messiah who's going to be my descendant, normally your descendants would look back on you and have respect for you. He says, I'm looking down at this descendant who is greater than me. Jesus asks the question in verse 44, David calls him Lord, how then is he his son? How can the son of David be the God of David? How can someone be human, but also in some way be divine? And Jesus doesn't answer the question, he leaves it, leaves it hanging. He leaves it hanging. The answer to the dilemma is to recognize that the Messiah, that a Christ, as it is translated here, is just the, the the Greek form of the word Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, the answer of the dilemma is to recognize that Messiah is not merely David's son. He is David's son, but he is more. He's also David's Lord, being divine. He does not attain divine status by human appointment, but he possesses it by his eternal nature. And as David's son, he is Israel's king, and as God's son, he is eternal God. That is what is true of Jesus Christ, not simply that he's a great teacher. Not as the, the, the Ligonier study has shown that three-quarters of evangelical Christians regard Jesus merely as a created being. By the way, let me just deal with that for a second. John one, 1 in the beginning was the Word, referring to Christ. Okay, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it says, all things were made by him. Okay, just very basic logic. If everything is made by him, he can't be a created being, right? You can't be, everything was made by him. Like, no, no, no. He's got to be outside of this box called things that are created, right? This is really basic Christianity. Jesus is God. He does not have a beginning. He is eternal, co-equal with the Father in glory. And a Jesus who is not divine cannot save you. If the Jesus you are trusting in is simply the greatest created being of God, If the Jesus you are trusting in is simply a good moral teacher, he's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. You see, cultural Christianity, like the people of Jesus' day, it misses the majesty of Jesus. Cultural Christianity, megachurch Christianity in many ways, not always, presents a Jesus who is a friend, but not king. By the way, is Jesus a friend? Yes. But he's so much more, he's also a king. It presents a Jesus you can call out to when things get tough, but not one to whom you bow in adoration and worship. A Jesus who can get you through life like a set of training wheels. A Jesus who is supportive of my endeavors, who favors most of my decisions, and happily rides shotgun wherever I want to go. This Jesus will give you a get-out-of-hell-free card, but won't make any requirements in your life. Many, many millions in our country believe in that Jesus, and it is not the Jesus of the Bible. Many people have raised their hands with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around to accept that Jesus. Many have recited prayers to invite him into their hearts. A Jesus who offers forgiveness without repentance, heaven without holiness, and a good life without suffering, that's not the Jesus that we see on the pages of Scripture. Cultural Christianity not only misses the majesty of Jesus, it misses the message of Jesus. I think perhaps the most insidious manifestation of cultural Christianity is Jesus wants you to be moral. Now, the Bible has a lot of things to say about morality, but listen, the gospel is not be good. The Jesus of cultural Christianity will call you to a moral life. He will say, well, be a good neighbor. Be a... Patriotic American, don't support abortion, avoid premarital sex and faithfully attend church. All of those are good things, but they're not not—they're not the, the, the necessary things to be saved. The gospel is not be nice, but be new. The gospel is not try to make your life a little bit better and follow the example of Jesus. The gospel requires that ye must be born again. It does not simply say, Put some more makeup on the corpse, but it says you must be raised from the dead. Not just some more paint on a dead, rusty car, but a complete rebuild. And listen, you and I can't do that for ourselves. We cannot raise ourselves from the dead. We cannot rebuild the engine of our lives ourselves. It requires a work of God from the outside. It requires atonement and redemption and substitution and a miracle of God to come in and utterly transform your life. Not just be moral, not just be nice, Be completely new. It's not that morals are wrong, it's that morals are not enough. And the gospel is not be good, but it has come to Jesus knowing that you are not good, knowing that you are a rebel against Him, and throwing yourself on His mercy and grace alone. Our fundamental need, your fundamental need this morning, is not that you are empty and you need more purpose in your life. It's that you're desperately lost. It's that you're spiritually dead. We're not just discouraged, we're dead. And we need Christ's power to come in and change that. Now, I want to come to a final characteristic of cultural Christianity. And it is this it externalizes piety. In other words, it sort of makes religion just about a few external things that you do. Again, not things that are in themselves are bad, they're just not enough. Jesus now in verse 45, then in the audience of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes, okay, the, 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 the sort of the cultural elite of the day, which desire, they like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms of the feasts, which devour widows' houses and forests, so make a long prayers, the same shall receive greater damnation. And then in chapter 21, we get a contrast of a, a widow who comes with just $2 in the offering plate and her heart's in the right place. And Jesus is like, follow that example, not, not, not the scribes, not the Pharisees. Now, what he's really calling out here is hypocrisy, right? They, they, they're all about man's praise. They're not really concerned about worshiping God. They're all concerned about money and getting rich, and then we'll go and just pray some prayers so we look good to people. But do you notice how focused their religion is on externals? Walk around on the big flowing robes so people notice us. Oh, you're, you're, you're one of the leaders. You're one of the important people. They love to walk around in their religious garb. They love the greetings in the marketplace, which is more than just like, oh, hello, rabbi. In the culture of the day, because you're a social better, this would require these elaborate greetings and bowing. It would just be further cementing to everyone in everyone's eyes. Look how important these religious leaders are. Just esteemed out in public. Getting the best seats in the synagogue, they would be sitting up here on the platform. That's how the synagogue would be set up. Best seats in the house, not like a Baptist church, like the back wall, but the best seats in the house in the Jewish synagogue was up here where everyone can see you. Imagine if these four seats up here were like, hey, the holiest people in Cloverleaf Baptist Church, they get to sit, get to sit up here. And it's a special honor to sit up here. They loved getting that prominence, to be invited to sit on the platform. They loved the best seats at the, at the feasts. Jesus talked about that in in Luke chapter 14. Quite simply, they they did what they did, their their piety. By that, what I mean is their external acts of worship. They did simply to be seen by other people. Is it not easy to go to church because other people will see you go to church and be like, oh, you go to church, you must be a Christian. To pray when you're at a restaurant because other people will see, oh, look, they're praying at the restaurant, they must be a Christian. By the way, I am strongly in favor of going to church. The Bible commands it. I'm strongly in favor of praying in public. I think it's a good testimony. But when our Christianity... Here's the question you have to ask yourself. If I took away just going to church and praying before meals, what is distinctive in my life that my next-door neighbor doesn't have? What is actually fundamentally different about how I live my life other than sort of going to church and praying before meals? Cultural Christianity will emphasize those, those externals that other people can see. Piety gets reduced to just these few acts of external devotion and nothing more. It's so easy to go through the motions because people are watching. But Christianity is about so much more than going to church on Sunday and praying when you eat. It's more than just raising your kids to be well-behaved to say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, so you don't get embarrassed by them. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 47, we see that they're, they're greedy. They devour widows' houses. I think what this means is they convinced widows to give sacrificially to supporting them when they could ill afford it. And then to sort of make it really like, oh, look at, look at what your offerings are doing. I'm going to pray a really long prayer so you can see the, the effect of your gifts. I think it's really easy to see in that the, you know, the prosperity preachers on TBN. But let's strike a little closer to home. How often do we fall into the trap of thinking that God will bless my life, God will honor me if I attend church, read my Bible, and pray? And to engage in those activities, all of them good activities, not because I love Jesus, but because I think if I check those boxes, God will bless my life and get me a promotion at work. It's so easy to turn religion, to turn Christianity, into a tool for self-advancement, to self-actualization rather than the glory of Christ. Now in verses uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, we get this contrast between the rich throwing in all their money into the offerings. In the court of the women, there were 13 offering boxes. They had a, a shofar, a ram's horn that was coming out and the narrow end pointing up. That way you couldn't steal the money out of the box. People would go there very publicly and put their offerings in. So Jesus will talk about sounding a trumpet. You, you sort of drop the money in really high from the offering plate so everybody can hear it clinging and clanging, and it's like, oh, they're being very generous. So the rich people are coming in. They're, they're writing big checks. They're putting in Benjamins. Everybody can see, oh, wow, they're giving a lot of money. And then there's a widow in verse 2 who put in two mites. And those aren't little things that live on ticks and whatnot, but the, we're talking about a, a currency, two lepta. I mentioned earlier the denari- denarius, day's wage. A mite, the lepta, was 1 128. Okay, so you're thinking about like six minutes or something of your, of your day's work. Say, at, you know, your minimum wage is $15 an hour, somewhere around there. This is the equivalent of putting in $2. And she's not putting in $2 because she's stingy. She's putting in $2 because that's all she's got. She got the social security check in the mail and barely met the needs that she had, and then gave the rest. Now, what are the, what are the scribes doing with it? They're, they're lining their own pockets. They're misusing that. This is, sort of a, this is sort of a slam on this evil, corrupt system that takes advantage of the heartfelt piety of, of, of women like this. But Jesus says this, of a truth, verse 3, I say unto you, this poor widow has cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God, but she, out of her penury, out of her poverty, hath cast in all the living that she had. She gave everything. She came with a sacrificial heart. Cultural Christianity will focus on the externals, on the amount. Biblical Christianity will focus on the affections. Where's your heart? God is concerned far more with our attitude than the amount of what we of what we give. How easy it is to reduce Christianity to some stuff you do, like, hey, how many tracts did you hand out? You know, how much praying did you do this week? How many church services did you attend? And forget the heart is about loving God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Cultural Christianity will emphasize the former and neglect the latter. It reduces Christianity to just sort of mere externals of Hey, I'm blazing your car with a, with a fish. Festoon your wall with some, some nice sort of religious sentiments that you picked up at Hobby Lobby. Uh, there's so much more. There's so much more to Christianity as a relationship with God. So my question to you is, do you have cultural Christianity? You're like, well, to be a Christian means I, I, I have these views on moral issues and vote this way. Do you have a view of Christianity, a view of heaven that's just like, well, it's just kind of a, a better time than now, and I'm looking forward to a really materialistic, me-centered version of heaven? Is your idea of Christianity about a Jesus who's kind of there to improve your life or a Jesus who is Lord of your life? And is your Christianity reduced to a few boxes that you check once a week or once a month or at Christmas and Easter? Is your Jesus the Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus of popular Christianity? Let me say this unequivocally. Jesus hates cultural Christianity. You read the Old Testament to find out what he thinks of merely external religion, he hates it. And I'll say this too, if you are trusting in cultural Christianity, it will send you to hell. If you're trusting in in cultural Christianity rather than in Jesus alone, I would beg of you, turn to Christ today with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Turn to him in faith Not coming to him with, hey, here's the good things I've done. Here's the ways that I've checked the box. Hey, I'm a good Christian because I do X, Y, or Z. Coming to him saying, I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel against God. I've got nothing. And my only hope is to cling to the cross of Jesus. Now, all of us live in this culture. You might be a born-again Christian. You say, I know that I am saved. I know I'm trusting in Jesus alone. Do you see these characteristics at times, cropping up in your heart? Are are things in the right priority in your life? As we come to the Lord's table today, I would urge you, search your heart in light of the scripture we just heard. What what is most important in your life? What is crucial in your life? Do, do Do you love Jesus for Jesus, for his own sake? Let's bow together for a word of prayer, and as we do, as we prepare our hearts to go to the Lord's table, search your heart and confess sin to God.